Hey there, Parker X listeners. This is Brett Wood coming at you with another blast from the past episode. We recorded this in early 2020 in Charlotte, North Carolina, with a couple of platform directors with Passport. Luke Seegers and Kate Wagner sat down and chatted with me. It does have a little age. Kate has moved on to Amazon from Passport, much to the chagrin of many of her colleagues there. Uh, We hope you're doing well, Kate. Uh, In this episode, we talked about a few of my favorite topics, curb management, mobility, and the role of technology in in supporting effective curb management. While we recorded this pre-COVID, a lot of the information is still valid and can help with a lot of communities as they think about their post-COVID recovery plan. So, hope you get something out of it. Hope you enjoy. This is uh, Brett Wood with Parker X. Uh, we're in Charlotte, North Carolina on a very gloomy day today outside um, with some folks at Passport where it's not gloomy inside. They're doing yoga right outside the out the room here. Um, I'm with Luke Seegers and Kate Wagner, who are both uh, platform directors at Passport, and they're going to tell us a little bit about what they do and, 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 and how Passport's kind of changing the uh, the mindset of the industry. So um, maybe if y'all could start off with just tell me how you, how you got into parking, how you got here to Passport, and... Uh, just your history yeah well thanks for having us brett um so this is luke seegers and i've been at passport for a little over two years now um i stumbled into it to be honest um came for a conversation turned into an interview and i got hooked pretty pretty quickly but i'm not someone who has been in mobility or municipal anything uh prior to this i came from the tech industry and um have been really intrigued by data and just kind of solving hard product problems since I started working. And so uh, that's what really intrigued me about Passport was it wasn't immediately the parking part of it, but the more I learned, the more I uh, came to appreciate how important um, some of the things that are happening in the industry are, not only for parking, but for how people move around and um, for what cities are trying to do in the future. Perfect. Kate? Yeah, and I'm Kate Wagner. I'm the Director of Urban Mobility at Passport. Uh, prior to coming to Passport, I've been here for a little over a year now. I actually worked at General Motors, and that's kind of how I got into the mobility space. So um, I started out in product roles working on electric vehicles at General Motors, and then uh, transitioned to working in strategy and worked on a lot of uh, new mobility business models. And that's really when you know I got really interested in and developed a passion for urban mobility. Um, and that work there, that led me to Passport, and I really admired what the company was doing and found, um, you know, I was really invested in, I think, their vision for the future and moving more towards a mobility platform um, than just being a parking company, and that's really what, what drew me to Passport. Nice. And, and Passport's, in, in parking standards, a fairly young company. It's only been around for, what, 10 years? 
upper limit 10 years. Yeah. I think it's seven to 10 <laughs> that years. That might be somewhere. a little generous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think probably about eight. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. So, I mean, and, and in those eight years, I mean, y'all have evolved from what seemed like it was largely just a payment platform into a, a group that's really trying to change the way we think about everything associated with, with our industry. Um, so you maybe take me through that evolution a little bit, what it's, what it's been like to go from parking payment into much, much bigger things. Yeah, I think there's part of this is it, it's a big advantage for us to only be seven to 10 years old, I think, compared to a lot of other um, of our traditional competitors, I guess you would say. Um, it's also been a kind of a right time, right place sort of thing, because I think if uh, you would have had a 10 year old company working in parking uh, any time in the past 100 years pr prior to now, there would have been less interesting stuff going on. Um, but Things are happening pretty quickly now. A lot of them have nothing to do with Passport, um, but they give us a ton of opportunities to uh, continue to expand and to continue to push back um, beyond what we've what we've always done. So, I think one of the things that's been really clarifying over um, the past two years has been there's there's been a lot of movement of private companies and alternative methods of of uh, moving around that have shown up. So the Ubers and Lyfts, the micromobility companies. Um, and one of the things that's been really clarifying for us and differentiates us from a lot of folks who are out there um, solving similar problems is the fact that we have a pretty extensive municipal client base. And so having cities be our client and already having uh, hundreds, close to a thousand municipal contracts puts us in a pretty unique place where we can um, not only get the point of view of all those cities, but also uh, recognize problems and get to work solving them for a bunch of clients uh, without having to go through what what is sometimes a particularly long sales cycle that cities sometimes lead to so yeah yeah so i mean in, in the convergence of like the, the different platforms i know early on parking payment transit payment seemed to be two things that you were doing mm -hmm. and doing well the convergence of those things and now um, thinking about all those other modes in one app in one place and, and, and managing that both from the municipal side but also from the customer side. Kind of take me through how y'all are, are thinking about that and, and how y'all are trying to change that dynamic. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one thing that I found really compelling about Passport and I kind of identified as a reason why I wanted to come here is that I actually felt like relative to, you know, other companies who have either been in the parking space and are trying to you know, move into more of a digital solution. I felt like Passport actually had, you know, right to win in this um, space of providing a digital platform to cities, um, just by a function of not being, you know, hardware dependent and being um, from its start and from its inception. I think this gets back to a little bit to what Luke was talking about, um, is right place, right time, and having that benefit of being a young company. Um, but yeah, having that kind of origin story in, in an entirely digital platform I felt like was really um, important to getting us you know to where we are today and giving us kind of that right to win in this space you have a if you start with parking I think one of the things that's become more clear in retrospect and kind of uh, I guess within the last couple of years has become more clear is that parking is itself there's a lot of places it leads right so enforcement and permits and transit and all the things that we have pursued as a company haven't necessarily been um, they've really been by helping our clients solve kind of the next problem and so we've sort of just followed the road wherever it would take us uh, for a while but I think one of the things that's become a little more evident now is that 
um, what the industry refers to as curbside management is really weirdly <laughs> the road we've been walking down without knowing what the road was called. We just kept doing things that were like things cities needed to kind of manage or to help enforce the curb. And now we're ending up in a place where the curb is actually now becoming much more interesting, much more quickly. Interesting meaning complicated. And so uh, when it comes to how do you deal with commercial vehicles or how do you deal with um, the scooters or how do you deal with um, TNCs and, and rideshare, all those are brand new problems that if you start from scratch is really intimidating. But if you've kind of done, been through the, the ringer three or four or five times like we have, <laughs> then you start to see some patterns and you start to say, hey, maybe we don't need to start over here and maybe we can just uh, kind of take the solutions that we've already put in place and just project them onto some new modality, if you will. Right. It's, it's fascinating to me because um, I think people hear curb lane management, or they think about curb lane management, and you're right, it's changing so much and so rapidly that I think it just cripples them a little bit with fear. Like, they just, mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. Like, there's the commercial loading side of things has expanded so much, and we're thinking about monetization of commercial loading or the other side of the curb and the micromobility element that's sitting right there. Um, or bike lanes or things like that that we're having to kind of manage and and it's interesting to see everybody's different take on how to begin to to look at those things and, and I, I try to simplify it into first we have to have data to understand how it's operating um, and I think like a platform like yours where inherently you're looking at all those different modes that are happening along the curb begin to give us some feed of data to understand the how the what the who the why at the curb um, and it's interesting that you said that you're you're you're, you're kind of catching up to it, right? Like you've done all these things, and then you realize, oh, we've done all these things behind <laughs> us, right? So, um, give me give me some examples of some places where you've done some things, and and now it's being applied to a little more holistic curve management. So probably the just setting the stage, I'll let Kate actually talk about this specific example. But I'd say one pattern that we're really excited about at Passport is like the the notion of parking as like paying for occupying the curb and so uh, parking historically has meant like I drive my car up I put money in parking meter and that's parking but um, conceptually you're basically renting the curb for a period and as new renters come into town uh, UPS for example or, or something Uber or Lyft something like that um, they're kind of just not paying rent or they're paying it through some other like permit system that's doing this other thing. And so ultimately, I think where we get really excited about curbside uh, stuff is taking the model of parking payments and trying to extend it to anything that touches the curb. And so um, at that point, it's not just like a dollar an hour or two dollars an hour or, or just a revenue generating mechanism, but you can start actually driving city outcomes matter so things like reducing congestion if you're actually kind of if you have a lever like a price lever to start changing um, incentives for everyone who is renting quote-unquote the curb uh, then all of a sudden uh, you can start solving much bigger problems and I think that's what inspires I know it's what inspires me I think it inspires us around here um, quite a bit is that it's not parking is really kind of a, a policy not just the payment but it, it's a way to drive outcomes for a city and I think um, what Kate and the team have done with, with scooters has been a pretty good example of that. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to talk a little bit about what we've done on yeah, the micromobility sure. front? So I think, you know, 
echoing or you know kind of doubling down on the idea that we're using the concept of parking to help cities manage anything that touches their curbside in this case specifically scooters but anything that touches or accesses their right-of-way um, we are essentially uh, using a model where we're doing this we're piloting it with three cities right now so the cities of Charlotte here where we're based out of uh, Detroit and Omaha and we are we have worked with the city to identify a set of zones and attach prices to those zones that are consistent with the kind of policy outcomes that they're trying to achieve. Um, so for example, here in Charlotte, we have a light rail system that goes all through Charlotte. And so we make the price to park for scooters, then this is invoiced to the uh, scooter operators. So we make the price to park um, you know, along the light rail and at transit stops very, very cheap, or in some cities they make it zero and essentially subsidize um, the parking. And you make it very expensive to park, for example, in our really dense uh, uptown area in Charlotte. And by creating these price differentials between the different zones, you can drive actually fleet distribution to different zones depending on you know what you're trying to achieve. So in Charlotte, they really want to use scooters as a first mile, last mile solution. So um, really encourage them to support public transportation. So that's why we're having uh, the price differential there and trying to get more scooters uh, at the zero or low price parking zones around transit stops. Um, and each city has different goals that they're trying to achieve. So, and, and who, who's paying? Is it the end user? Is it the scooter company? How, how does that how does it's that work? It's the scooter company. So okay. um, we connect to the scooter companies. We receive data via their um, API, and we essentially create parking sessions uh, that you know are mapped to each of these zones, and then assigned you know a rate. Um, you know, in the case of what we're doing right now, we do a free 30 minutes. So your first. 30 minutes of every parking session are free because we want scooters to be available for people to use them. But what we really want to disincentivize is scooters sitting, um, you know, unused for a very extended period of time. So that is, you know, invoiced at the end of every month to each scooter company. So it's really up to the scooter companies how they want to optimize around this kind of model. Um, you know, they might choose to pay the kind of hefty parking of keeping all of their scooters you know, uptown where they know people are going to be using them a lot, or they might, you know, try and take a more um, holistic or partnership approach with the city and actually do what the city wants them to do and, and make sure that they're, you know, around the light rail and things like that. Yeah, one would hope. And yeah. and, and, and you, you would hope at a certain point, too, we begin to educate the end user mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, obviously your destination is your destination, but if there's same as demand-based pricing in a city with mm -hmm. parking, yep. if there's demand-based pricing for the scooter as well, perhaps we could leave it somewhere else yeah. so that it's in that fortunate place for the next person yeah. to use. And I, I think you're you're hitting on a really important thing there, which is historically uh, it feels like cities have taken on almost the entire burden themselves to change end user behavior, which is really complicated and gets more complicated when rideshare shows up and scooters show up. Everything that shows up, you have to figure out how to you know, change those users' behaviors now. And that's it's really tough. And so... Um, our, our approach and what we're, we're, we're working with cities to do and scooters and generally is let's try and create more of a marketplace like um, like a supply and demand type free market such that, you know, bird and lime and spin in the scooters case are going to be way, they're going to have a way easier time changing user behavior or setting like a discount if you park it on the next block or something like that. City is going to constantly struggle to solve a problem like that. But if you can... Uh, make trade-offs, get 
scooter companies on the same page with cities and align their incentives, then all of a sudden you can start to have partnerships, meaningful partnerships between um, cities and private industry that actually help cities achieve whatever their outcomes are. Yeah, that, that, that's a great example. I mean, that collaboration alone yeah. begins to break down a lot of the barriers. And when you, when you, to go back and talking about, you know, renting the curb and, 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 uh, what that looks like. I did, I did my first ever curb lane management study here in Uptown in 2010. Hmm. And, and the outcome of that study was we need more on street parking because in 2010, we hadn't yet gotten to this place where we were thinking about renting the curb. And I imagine if we redid that study right now, parking would be the least prioritized element because we're thinking about moving people, moving goods, uh, micromobility options and things like that. And the, the tricky thing is getting those people who traditionally haven't been part of the paying pool, the FedExes, the UPSs, the commercial loaders, the birds, the lines, the spin, all of them to come in as a partner. So how, how difficult was it when you started these pilots in Omaha, Detroit, and Charlotte to convince convince the scooter companies to, to get on board? So it wasn't too difficult to convince them to get on board because our vision actually, so what a lot of cities do uh, when they have scooters, as you may or may not be familiar, they tend to set an arbitrary cap and an arbitrary fee, kind of almost like a taxi medallion system. Uh, so, for example, here in Charlotte, each scooter company has a cap of 400, um, and in most other cities, they would pay some kind of arbitrary fee between like 100 and 300 dollars per scooter. Um, so, what kind of our value proposition is, or what we um, pitch to the scooter companies, is the and to the cities. Uh, was that instead of setting these kind of arbitrary cap and arbitrary fees, you should actually kind of let free market forces dictate. Um, so a company, hypothetically, should be able to make their own trade-offs and put as many scooters as they want out. But the downside to that, or the alternative to that, is they have to pay for all the parking for those scooters. So it's really up to them to find their kind of equilibrium about what the price and um, distribution and number are and you know I think each company will have a slightly different uh, equilibrium but you know if they're all paying into uh, the same kind of model or they're being charged you know the same under a model I think that they will um, end up at about the same place probably in terms of like the number of scooters so that was very compelling to the scooter companies um, and that was not difficult uh, for them to to convince them to at least participate in this pilot um, kind of uh, you know, see where it goes. And um, yeah, so I think that they really like that model because instead of having to negotiate a different cap and fee with each city, it's a very scalable model, right? So if a couple cities all of a sudden pick this up, then they don't have to, you know, worry about all of the, you know, lobbying or government relations, um, you know, personnel that they have to keep on staff to negotiate with each city. Uh, it's a much more scalable solution. Nice. Nice. I think we've, it, it's been interesting to see how you can have the sorts of negotiations Kate was just describing with uh, those companies and help them find scalable solutions that they don't have to go to every city and like talk with city council and, and you know, private industry um, <laughs> meeting the friction that is the speed of government uh, is difficult, especially when you're these companies that are funded for growth and city councils or every city council is a new obstacle for you. So um, figuring out how to scale the policy basically, not just like the rules on the books, but like let, how do you, what's the technology to actually then do the thing has been really valuable. And I, I think one of the things we've discovered in micromobility, um, 
commercial loading is another thing where n none of these companies are like, ah, yes, the system is working very well as it is, <laughs> as it is, right? right. So for commercial loading, they're they're saying like, look, all we're trying to get in is drop and drop a box right. off and like get moving. We're not trying to like park for an hour. So if there was a spot right out front that I could stop in for two minutes at 5 a.m. and not get a ticket, that would save them so much money. So there's a lot of pain that commercial loading vehicles are dealing with as well. Um, expense, I should say. Um, and a lot of the tension is exactly what you saw explode with Uber and Lyft back in the day. They pushed so hard, there was no real interface, not a technical interface, but there was no real way to interface with lots of cities to scale the way they needed to. And it wasn't that Uber and Lyft, or Uber especially, I guess, was on some totally different page with the cities is that there was no real forum for them to do anything else and not totally disappoint their investors. So there's a lot of friction that exists in the system. I think what we see is we're, because of all these clients that we have in our existing relationships, we're in a place where we can actually help scale um, the relationship between cities and private mobility companies with mobility defined pretty broadly there. Right. Well, it, it's a very broad, broad category. But <laughs> yeah, true. It, it's fascinating to me. You, you bring up the commercial loading because everywhere I go, that seems to be the big foray now is like, how do we begin to manage commercial loading? I'm fascinated by the fact that the yeah. big companies like they budget, you know, millions of dollars every year just because they're going to get citations, right? They know they're going to get them for the level of access that they want. Why can't we create that level of access and generate revenue in a more positive way that helps to, to manage that? And so are you seeing any cities doing anything unique with commercial loading that, that is beginning to break down that barrier? Or is that, is that the next frontier for Passport? So we're definitely interested and have, have begun kind of socializing ideas there. We have, we have I, it's one of my favorite subjects, so I'm going to try and stay brief here. But... The thing I would notice in the market that's happened the most is I feel like it's coming up a whole lot more than it used to. Yep. To the point you just made, the number of times we'll walk in and, and chat with a client and they'll proactively bring it up without us even mentioning it is far higher than it was a couple of years ago. Um, and I think, in my experience at least, the story that they should kind of be treated as though they're parking makes sense, which doesn't mean they're paying for an hour or whatever the minimum amount is on a meter to stop for two minutes. Right. Like obviously you might want to have different policies there. Um, but I do it. You can feel cities recognizing that the problem exists in a, in a, we need to solve it sort of way. Um, and it's getting worse. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's exciting. I, I think we're bringing kind of a relatively unique view in terms of how to solve it, but it's really nice to be met in the market with clients coming to say, Hey, we're not ex exactly sure how to do this, but we acknowledge it's a pretty big problem, and we're we're kind of we're curious to hear what how you think we could do a good job here. And it, it's it's interesting because it, it is parking, it is a transaction, but it's it's much quicker. Yeah, it's it's it it probably should be priced differently to to influence turnover because we definitely need turnover in a much more limited space. It's almost unenforceable though, right? Like in traditional parking mm -hmm. management metrics unless I've got a parking enforcement officer standing out there, it's almost unenforceable. <laughs> I feel like you've, you've got a solution for this <laughs> or you're about to step in at one. It's not perfect. Yeah. I'm rolling up my pants legs yeah. in excitement here. Well, so. think, first of all, we like to call them, and we picked this up from somewhere, some city we talked on the road, but we call them curb kisses. So it's curb like, kisses. It's I not like a parking that. session per se, yeah. right? It's just, it's a much shorter amount of time, much more frequent maybe, but right. 
So enforcement is a really big problem here. And this is one of the places that you probably, I probably feel like I hear the most divergent solutions where cities are thinking LPR cameras or extra boots on the ground, or there's, there's various adaptions, adaptations of traditional solutions. And I think one of the things that's been really powerful in our micromobility pilot that actually scales nicely um, is the idea that you don't necessarily have to catch every offender. Right. Right. And so if you're dealing with a fleet like Bird, for example, Bird is the one sending you the data. It's not the end user deciding whether to park. Like they're, they're, they're parking in the Bird app and then that, that stops their session. Um, and starts a parking session uh, conceptually. So it's not the user being a bad actor because they didn't want to pay for parking because they're not paying for parking. So um, what you can do is you can actually, in a lot of cases, not all cases, but in a lot of cases, you can actually um, handle enforcement through pricing. So meaning if you park in the middle of uh, a park that's not supposed to be parked in, right. um, then it's a parking session. The data comes through. Bird knows the scooter's there. And so um, you can have a different policy. Kate was referring to zones earlier. You can have a policy that's that park and say, all right, this was a 45-minute session in a place that there wasn't supposed to be a session at all. And that can be priced at like a penalty pricing level versus just kind of a cheap to free thing that it would have been if it would have been 300 feet that way. And so you're depending on GPSs in this case um, to do a lot of uh, it programmatic or automatic mm -hmm. enforcement. Um, that does require, of course, that the GPS is precise enough. So you can't say, is this in the middle of the sidewalk or on the side of the sidewalk? That's something that GPS technology just isn't there for yet. But there's a lot of stuff you can do as it, can do as it relates to kind of macro distributions, where scooters are, are they in this park or not? Uh, those sorts of things you can, it turns out, actually do programmatically with zero people changing their day-to-day. -day. Right, and when you think about that from a, or from a commercial loading perspective, I mean, it's almost yeah. like congestion pricing. Mm -hmm. You got the it. The deeper into the heart of the city we go, the more the price is going to be, the longer the dwell time is, the more the price is going to be. The interesting thing about commercial loading to me is that the end user is a direct employee Mm -hmm. of of the payee so like as, if i'm renting a scooter and i leave it in the park it, it's of no consequence to me bird has to pay it and they have to send somebody out to grab it and get it mm -hmm. out of the park but if i drive for fedex and i dwell in the wrong place for too long like that's that's a, a negative connotation on my employment record or whatever it may be um, i almost wonder if you could use that as a, a, a behavioral influence yeah i mean i think that mm -hmm. in my mind that would i think that all of these, you know, fleets would optimize very quickly around. I mean, we're seeing with, you know, the scooter companies that we're working with, um, just implementing this kind of system has really led them to dig into their operations and, you know, really figure out how they can optimize um, and make sure their scooters are, you know, if they can go pick them up in certain areas, like less than 30 minutes, they're really digging into it. Um, and I would imagine it would be kind of exponentially true for um, the delivery fleets where they have complete control essentially over their um, either employee or contract worker I guess depending on the uh, application but I mean I think that, that fascinates me I would I would almost like to give some of the, the delivery fleets like the ability to pay more for better access mm. because that revenue is going to allow for better allocation of amenities at the curb so let's let's capture that not through citations but through them willingly pay 
Um, and it will change the behavior of some of them, but but you know, FedEx or UPS mm-hmm. is probably going to go wherever they want to go, and right. let's let them. Let's let them do it. Let's let so, them do it. Yeah. yeah. One thing related to that that is really interesting is um, I know Seattle is a leader on this front, but um, the idea of not having like one specific use type of use for a chunk of curb. So yeah. dividing it up during the day, for example, or weekends versus um, weekdays, something like that allows you to do some of the stuff you were just saying too. And it's a little hard from a policy perspective today because you got to, everything has to be different in the morning than it is in the afternoon or whatever. But uh, if you have some kind of programmatic system that UPS and FedEx can say like, this is a parking zone until 7 a.m. Like no one's there until 7 a.m. But you can go and it's pretty free, pretty close to free if you go in the morning. But then maybe it becomes parking and then maybe towards the evening it becomes delivery and drop off again. You can start um, not only incentivizing behavior within the day, uh, but also saying like, hey, guys, let's move this to off hours or you can come during the middle of the day. It's just going to cost you a lot more. And so these are the sorts of things that honestly, the technology part isn't necessarily the crazy part, but it's just getting the platform in place and um, coming up with what sort of uh, pricing you want to put in place to drive a specific outcome. And at this point, and this is where it gets really exciting. You're, you're talking outcomes, yeah. right? And you're talking about like, what do I want to happen in downtown Seattle? Or what do I want to happen in like downtown Boston? Uh, and if that's what I want to happen, then what should I do? And, and technology is not in the way of you being able to do it anymore, right? It's not your, your notepad where you wrote down all the license plates of UPS trucks or, you know, whatever it is, or even your computerized system where you wrote down all the, the license plate numbers of, of UPS trucks. You're, you're kind of past the technology hurdle. And at that point, it's more of a policy question, which is a, a really good place to be if you're in a city. Not to say it's easy, but at least you have the option of doing much more powerful stuff. And dynamic pricing, as, as, as you mentioned earlier, is a great example of like even a base level of, of dynamism opens up a whole lot of behavioral economic stuff that cities currently can't do because they can't do basic price tweaking without a whole lot of work. That's right. Well, and... and you, you wouldn't believe how much of a hurdle it still is to get some of those things approved in places where the idea right. of implementing paid parking as a, as a function or the idea of implementing dynamic pricing as a function just goes over like a lead balloon. So right. yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. Now, I think, I think there's one final challenge when we talk about curb management and the, the dynamic one? nature. Because <laughs> yeah, one, one, yeah, one, one, you're right. The technology is there. If we, can, if we can get past the enforcement of wanting to have everything enforced, the communication of what's happening at the yeah. curb. If my curb is loading until 7 a.m. and then parking until 2 p.m. and then TNCs and then loading again, and like how do I communicate that, right? You either have, uh, you know, the, the old school method is you've got like a 17-foot tall sign that has time buckets on it and nobody knows what the heck's going on, <laughs> or you've got to have some type of dynamic communication out mm-hmm. there. Um, and I haven't seen anything yet that gets me to a place where, you know, I, as a driver, I can I know what's going on. Yeah, I think we're still, there's still a little bit of a lag there. Because I think if you look at like a lot of the mobile payment for parking apps, there are apps that will like immediately send you um, a notification if you try and park in a zone uh, where you're not allowed to park during those hours or something like that. So the communication is responsive, I think, to what you're trying to do. But we want to get to a place where it's driving behavior. We're actually able to, um, you know, tell somebody like, don't go park in this really, um, you know, busy area 
because it's going to be you're not going to find a parking spot or something it's like 100 percent at capacity um and so you really i think that's when you really get to be able to drive mass like large scale or mass behaviors when you can um you know predictively or tell people ahead of time or in advance where to go and direct you know things that way do you think we're getting close to that i'll let luke (laughs) answer that i think he's a little closer to the the parking stuff it's a really hard problem and i think our philosophy is because parking is kind of distributed everywhere throughout a city you can't depend on one choke point like if i just put up signs or if i just like (laughs) i don't know do do something like that um you're not going to get the message out and getting the message out is really hard our general approach and it's not uh it's going to take time is to make it so that basically that information just persists in as many places as possible so it shouldn't be oh i have to have this city's parking app whatever it is and go in and check and plan my route it, and then jump over to google maps and like da 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 um it can't be the, like this 12-step planning process that no one does instead if you can kind of take that pricing information and that availability information that kate referenced and embed it into as many things as possible so that it's just it ends up being in front of people not because they went looking for it but because it's relevant it to found them their yeah. thing mm-hmm. it found them exactly then that's when, uh, I guess that's A, when the user can make decisions. And ideally, in a lot of cases, it's not even an explicit decision. It's not like, let me figure out where I want to park. But it's maybe your routing just gets changed a little bit by the app. Or maybe um, you get a discount if you come 30 minutes later. Or there could be some smart stuff that doesn't require users to actively like pick their parking zone, which is certainly not a cognitive process for most people <laughs> yeah. these days. But you could get some of the same behavioral stuff we were talking about a second ago where companies are saying, like, it's just going to be faster for you. Like me as a navigation app, it's going to be a better navigational route for you if I take you over there. Or if I'm if you're coming to Starbucks and it's, like, super crowded, then maybe I try and distribute that over time a little bit better and I'm willing to adjust my pricing for it. Like, all this stuff takes time. It takes many parties. But I think what's interesting is that Um, the transformation similar to many other transformations is that the city doesn't have to solve the whole thing themselves right there's not like a super sign or a blimp or something that you need to float up in the air to tell everyone instead you need to and I don't mean partner from a legal perspective but you need to find partners (laughs) technology providers or apps that people use or things that where you can take the information to them as you said yep yeah, and I think we're seeing this a lot, especially with the cities that we work with very closely and are piloting things on, especially with the scooter pilot. I think for a long time, um, you know, cities have been very prescriptive about, you know, especially in parking, curbside management, about what's happening in their cities. And I think we're really shifting into um, kind of an era, if you will, of needing more partnership, I think, with cities needing more partnership to get to these kind of results. And I think that's Um, You know, one thing that we're very focused on is trying to be, you know, good partners and pilot a lot of these, um, you know, solutions that we've thought of, these kind of ideas and concepts that we have. And I think that that kind of partnership, especially when you bring in, um, you know, a private company like, you know, scooter companies or UPS, FedEx, um, that's when you really kind of have the optimal 
parties at the table to really make something happen when you have buy-in from, I think, all those, you know, three parties, essentially. And it's really surprised me how it's not, as Kate said earlier, like a negotiation or that you have to kind of like pull a switch on somebody. Everyone's like, yeah, this could be better. And whether that's because of the cap or because there's just no delivery parking zones or like everyone's pretty much trying to like keep utilization high. It's just been really hard to to do that in a way that puts private industry and cities on the same team. And I think that's that's ultimately what's shifting right now. Well, I think when we all realize that our goals are moving in the same direction, exactly. you know, the end game may be different. Mine's revenue driven. You know, the cities may be optimization driven, but but both of those things can work towards the same end game. That's right. Um, are you are you finding? So I mean, that it's it's great to hear that this is happening and partners are collaborating. Are you finding this happening in cities of all scales, or or is it is it happening kind of at the top down, larger cities, and 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 does it does it find its way to the medium and smaller sized cities? Yeah, I think it's definitely focused, especially right now on the top tier cities. Um, number one, because I think that they have the ability to be a little more proactive and plan. I think they have the resources to plan out a little more in advance. They have the density that these kind of private companies want in order to you know, optimize their business operations. So for example, you know, scooter companies, um, they just came to Omaha, you know, this year and we helped with the rollout there, but that was, you know, certainly as nice as Omaha is, that was certainly not their, you know, primary launch market. You know, they're going for the San Francisco's and the LA's and, you know, San Diego's and Chicago, Chicago's, you know, they've tried and they're finally in Chicago at a small scale, but really those places where the density, um, warrants their investment there, where they're going to get the unit economics, the per unit economics to, to work. And so... Um, I think it's going to have a trickle-down effect. I think a lot of the uh, Tier 1 cities are definitely the focus right now, and I'm sure that a lot of um, you know, pilots or concepts or policies that they adopt will trickle down, I'm sure, to um, some of like the second, third, and so on tier cities. Which actually works really well for us, that pattern, because we can kind of solve the problem uh, in a – relatively small number of places and our technology or the the solutions we're providing aren't you know like atlanta specific or chicago specific we're trying to build tools for cities to implement their policies and so if city number one atlanta and chicago and chicago want to have two totally different kind of price curves you could say for delivery vehicles then there's no reason you couldn't do that and in fact um, in the micromobility pilot we see different pricing curves and zone setups based on outcomes. And so um, if you build a, a kind of bottoms up system or, or solve the core problem, I guess, versus um, getting too city specific and give the cities the room to implement within the sandbox, I guess you could say, uh, then so far it feels like the sorts of patterns we've been talking about today are the sorts of things that scale to a lot of different use cases. Um, acknowledging kind of implicitly that every city's gonna be a little bit different. Interesting, and <clears throat> sounds like there's a lot going on today that y'all <laughs> are wrestling with. Um, hey, what is what is Passport looking for three, five years from? What, what, what is the next thing that's gonna start shifting where you go and where your clients and cities go? So the big thing for us is really just to stay, so when we say clients around here, we're talking about cities, mm -hmm. municipalities, um, and private operators. Uh, it's really keeping an eye on on 
how their problems are evolving. Like one, one of the crazy things about all of this is I think it's fairly, um, there's a high probability of missing if you try and project more than a year or so out in terms of what Passport's gonna be doing, even more so than a couple of years ago. Uh, and so for us, you know, we've been talking about a lot of these ideas and I think these are not just like cool product ideas or like pilot things that we're gonna try. These are like our actual opinion on how we think like curbs should be managed in the future. Now something could totally happen tomorrow or six months from now that kind of blows all that up. But um, it seems to be based on pretty solid principles and in our test so far, um, with cities, it's been received well and has kind of helped accomplish the goals we're looking for. So I think we're we're pedal to the metal on making this real. Um, the key is just as you ha have all these parties coming in to just make sure you keep your clients first uh, and don't get distracted by the fact that you're you're working with huge companies who maybe sometimes have um, other desires and just make sure that the the core mobility problem for cities stays on the kind of front line for us. Yeah, I think it's very important. There are a lot of different ways that, you know, Passport could shift if needed, I think, over the next three to five years. And we are constantly, I think, shifting and reevaluating our strategic priorities. But I think the most important thing is really keeping, you know, our client and our customer first, um, because if we don't have a solution that cities want, we're not going to be in business uh, anymore. So I think that it really requ requires that constant, you know, partnership with our clients and, um, you know, especially really close, you know, communication and partnership um, with cities who are kind of at the forefront of leading these things because that's, those are going to be your leading indicators, right? Like where the market's going um, if there's, you know, all of a sudden a multitude of cities that are starting to think the same way, you know, about things. And so I think it's, that's, you know, the most important thing for us is really just continue to be a client focused and partnered organization. One other thing that's interesting that's happening, um, you said things that groups of cities do, Kate, and there's a lot of activity happening now within like data standards mm -hmm. and some of the, um, some efforts that to me feel like they're going to really impact the industry in pretty dramatic ways. And so I get excited about things like data standards, um, but the, the implication there is it's just another, it's not even a partner or vendor driven change, or it's not like necessarily a private industry change. It's that's other party that's helping to basically break down silos in places that silos have always existed. Uh, and it's, it's very likely going to be kind of a pro city thing that happens. It's very un, it's hard to know exactly what that thing is, but um, in a world where data can flow more freely between tool number one and tool number two or system number one and system number two or even client number one and or city number one and city number two, um, a lot of new things become possible. And I think um, urban mobility or, or municipal mobility has historically been uh, locked up for a number of different reasons. Like tools haven't really talked to other tools very much. And so uh, that's something I'm really excited about, whether Passport does it or not. I think there's going to be a lot of really cool stuff that um, puts things that probably seem kind of like Star Trekky today for cities that actually end up in their hands a lot sooner than they were thinking, just because silos are falling and, and people are really innovating right now.
No, I, I, I'm, I'm 100% with you. Like the data side of things, it's always been fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've moved into this realm where we're all trying to be smart cities and we're all trying to create ways to leverage data to make better policy decisions. And parking should be leading the way in that, right? Oh, yeah. like that's, we have more data than I think most anything that's happening out there. And, and we, we know where people are coming from, how long they're staying, what they're doing. We've never been able to harness that. So you're right. Mm-hmm. These data standards that are going to allow cities and their data scientists to go in and do better data analytics and manipulation could open the door to some really great things. That's that's right. That's fascinating. So and even data flowing from tool to tool. So things like city planning, being able to interface with more of a transactional system like ours is is really interesting. And it's not maybe even that technologically complex, but it's just it has been complex because the connection between those two has been absent. I, I think we focused for so long, and you know, this was 10 years ago, about making those two tools talk to one another. And, and somebody come on, came along somewhere and said, it's not about them talking to one another, it's just about them speaking the same language. Mm. And uh, yeah, no, it, it's fascinating that we're, we're entering that realm. So the next few years could be really, really, really interesting as we start to bring that, that together. I so. think we're, we're in a pretty good place at a pretty good time. Yeah, <laughs> y'all got into the industry at a perfect time, <laughs> yeah. right? So good job, good job. Um, well, this has been fascinating. We could talk curve management and data until the sun comes up later, but... Um, <laughs> So if, if people want to find out more about the work y'all are doing at Passport, and where can they find information about like case studies and the company and things like that? So the best place is probably our website, uh, passportinc.com. Uh, we have, we publish a bunch of case studies up there, uh, including some of the um, curb management stuff that we're talking about. Uh, there's going to be a lot of activity over the next couple of quarters, uh, but also just reaching out to someone um, on our team we have a lot of folks who, who think about this probably more than they should. So, uh, and we love hearing from clients or potential partners and all that kind of stuff because this is definitely not something we can do in a silo. And so we are constantly looking for folks to help educate us on how to do it right. Nice. Well, I appreciate you all taking the time today. Uh, any, any closing thoughts, shout outs you want to give? Oh, I wasn't ready. Uh. <laughs> No, I, I, I do really appreciate, um, I think the Passport, as we were talking about with parking, Passport has uh, really exceeded expectations in terms of the level of excitement that I, um, I, I wasn't expecting <laughs> what not only the, the job, but the uh, industry was going to be like. And I, it's really just been a, a pretty wild ride in a really good way. And so I, I've, I've had a blast and it's, I, obviously, I think we both, Kate and I both really love talking about this stuff. So. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think a lot of us around the office kind of joke that you know, our parents probably don't know what we do. And they're just like, oh, they work for, you know, a parking company. But it's really such a great time in this industry to there's so much to, I think, explore and so much that's so undefined. And it's, you know, a really great um, place and a really great opportunity to be into and, you know, something that uh, we have a lot of passion for. Yep, that's right. And now they can listen to the Parker X podcast and get a sense of what you do. You'd be surprised how many of my family members actually know that I don't design parking lots now. So. Oh, my dad will probably be like commenting on your uh, your website, or you know, he'll be reviewing the episode, giving it all the likes. Fantastic. Hey, Mom. Yeah. Hey. All right. Well, I will give one shout out to, to to Nathan Barry who brought us together today. Sorry you couldn't yes. be here, and hope you're not freezing your took us off too much in Iowa. But uh, thanks, man, for for bringing us together, and thank y'all, Kate and and Luke, for being willing participants in this and and chatting with me today so 
Well, thank of you. Of course, Brett. it was great. Yeah. 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 Thank you. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Parker X podcast. We sincerely appreciate it and hope you are enjoying our content. Please remember to rate, review, comment, subscribe, and share. And follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. The following has been a production of Parker X.